Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. Okay, ta-da! The voice River Radio of the Thames Valley. Hello, it's Turning Pages here on River Radio. We'll be discussing some great books and our favourite reads. We'll be talking about the Maidenhead Big Read. And looking at the literary life of Jane Austen. You're listening to Heather Adams and Julian Ashton on Turning Pages. Hello there. Every week we aim to delight you with an eclectic mix of recommended books to enjoy from the latest bestsellers to our favourite classics. So if you love reading or you just want to make sure you know what's happening in the world of books, this is your programme. Thank you for joining us. As always, we've got a packed show for you. For all lovers of romantic novels, the Romantic Novel Shortlist Awards have just been announced. I've been chatting with the team behind the Maidenhead Big Read, and we've been looking at the inspiration that is Jane Austen. And once again, we've been scouring the papers to spot interesting book news for you. And don't forget, we really do want to hear from you. So please drop me a line at julian at river.radio with any book news that you may have or anything that you think we, we, we might be interested in hearing in. And particularly if you have an idea of what we could do for one of our themes and future shows. So let's start with a quick roundup of what book stories have been in the news recently. Over to you, Heather. Yeah, so I was talking to a friend the other day who mentioned they were convalescing from a bad bout of pneumonia. And then look what I saw, and I spotted a recently published book called Recovery, The Lost Art of Convalescence by Dr Gavin Francis. And I thought this seemed to me perfectly timed with the problems about long COVID that we hear on the news all the time. So it's only a short and informative book, and it's for anybody who's involved in their own recovery and those who support them to do so which probably I think is everybody, isn't it? Mm. And it reminds us all that getting better is rarely something that happens in one go and that recovery is a sort of like a discrete therapeutic entity which deserves our full attention and why should we ever give up trying to get better? Even when things don't feel as though they could get much worse, we should always try to get better. So in this book, Dr Francis recalls the rich history of slow-paced recovery and the places and people who enabled it. Now, not all of the uh, the cures were very good. I think mm-hmm. I remember reading about the milk cures that confined patients to bed for weeks but did much harm and no good. Good Lord. And I don't <laughs> quite like that idea of bleeding that they used to do in Georgian mm. times. And anyway, the leeches. Yes, exactly. But I think what's important just to realise is that it takes time to rebuild ourselves and we need to understand that and I think this sort of the white heat of changing medical technologies makes you feel that you can just be restored back to normal straight away and instead we need to remember that it's the art of slow recovery so bring back convalescing that's what I say and buy the book and remember what 
what's important. Exactly. Uh, now, Book Talk um, is seeing more young people embrace reading than ever before. And this is translating into shops crammed to the gunnels with teenagers and young adults well, uh, in brilliant. a trend. Pardon? Brilliant. Yes. And it's a trend not seen since the heyday of J.K. Rowling and her Harry Potter books. And according to, and, and this is according to the Waterstones MD and Barnes & Noble CEO, James Daunt. And it's mm-hmm. really good. But in, interestingly, and the classics are also becoming um, unlikely viral, viral sensations. <laughs> Pride and Prejudice um, is is up there, proving to be very popular. But also, it seems, and we touched on this uh, last week, it was Ulysses by uh, James Joyce, Ulysses rather. And it's having its moment, though, <laughs> interesting. With, with, it's thought it's perhaps something to do with the rather racy letters that he used to send to his wife, and they've been used as a, as a way of, an introduction to the book. So that could be the reason why Ulysses is up there with the greats, <laughs> as it should be, of course. Yeah, exactly, yes. And fantastic Pride and Prejudice is up there by yes, Jane Austen. of course. Excellent. Our topic for today. As we'll find out later. Yes. So have you played the game Wordle yet? No, I haven't. I've heard about it. Yes. Um, but no, I haven't. No, I'm not I much haven't. of a games person. Ah, actually. right. Well, I haven't played it either. But a Welsh software engineer created the game for his girlfriend last year. And he's now sold it to the New York Times for a cool $1 million or so. Wow. Which is not bad. So the game is basically a fun guessing game where you have to discover a five-letter word one letter at a time. But you only have six tries to get it right. And after the sixth try... That's it. You can't do any more until the next day where it's a different word. Right. I think it's brilliant because you're not spending all day playing Mm. the game and wondering where the time went. So I think it sounds great fun. It does. It does. Now, another piece of good news um, for Hay House, the publisher, and its author, Vex King, um, whose personal development development book, Good Good Vibes and Good Life, has now sold over one million copies worldwide. And on top of that, it's been clocking up 100 weeks on the Sunday Times non-fiction bestseller list for paperbacks. Fantastic. That's pretty impressive. That's fantastic. And to Hay House. Yes, you know well. Yeah, indeed I do. Now, I spotted a lovely article in the Sunday Times over the weekend. There are letters from Beatrix Potter which reveal that the first piece of rabbit book, which was the tale of Squirrel Nutkins, lives on. So if you remember, I'm not sure you can remember, but anyway, if you remember that the book ends with Squirrel Nutkins being robbed of most of his tail by Old Brown, an owl that he annoyed. And Beatrix Potter continued the story in a number of letters she wrote, the daughter of the vicar of Newlands in the Lake District, where Potter lived. So writing as she as if she were Squirrel Nutkin, she pleads in the letter to Old Brown, Dear Sir, I should esteem it a favour if you will let me have back my tail, as I miss it very much. I would pay postage. <laughs> and the reply is not favourable. Um, the... Uh, the owl replies, Mr. Brown cannot return the tail. He ate it some time ago. It nearly choked him. <laughs> Mr. Brown requests that Nutkin not write again, as his repeated letters are a nuisance. <laughs> Which is just charming, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, it is. these letters and others are on display as part of an exhibition celebrating mm. the life and work of one of our best-loved children's authors, Beatrix Potter. And it's on at the V&A in South Kensington at the moment. 
No, oh, wonderful. That's excellent. And now for another piece of uh, of, of classics, um, and for the lover of classic comedy and carry on films, way yes, that's you, uh, Julian. I, yeah, it's me. Yeah, <laughs> I just would like to mention there's a production on at the Kenton Theatre in Henley on Friday, eighteenth of February, called Cult Figure Kenneth Williams. So you still have time to book a seat, um, and Heather and I are both going to be there, and uh, you might spot us uh, beforehand or in the interval. You can always check our pictures on the website and come and find us. Now, Williams is one of the most unique and beloved figures in British comedy history. Um, He, from show-stealing performances on the radio in Hancock's Half Hour, for example, but excelling in Round the Hall. And he was, for over 20 years, starring in the Carry On films, um, which made him become a darling uh, of that. But he also was a darling of the chat shows. And he he had a very, very rare talent, um, which he could turn from broad slapstick to erudite wit in a split second. Now... To make this recommendation relevant to books, of course, there are plenty uh, of books associated with this comic genius, which including his own diaries, letters and biographies. Or just join us at the Kenton Theatre on the 18th of February to celebrate his humour. Oh, yes, well, stop messing about. Ah! Is that your your impression of Kenneth Williams? Yes. (laughs) Who needs to go to the Kenton (laughs) Theatre? Brilliant. Right now, for all of us who live close to Maidenhead, we encourage you all to grab your nearest and dearest little ones and attend the Maidenhead Big Read Festival, which runs on Saturday and Sunday, the 5th and 6th of March. Its goal is to engage and unite local children of all ages and backgrounds with a love of reading and particularly focusing on those children who are currently missing out on all that a love of books can provide. It sounds an absolutely fabulous event, which is free to all, so that makes it even better. Mm-hmm. So I was talking to Stefan Stefan, who is twice past president of the Maidenhead Thames Rotary Club and is also chair of the group that organised the Maidenhead Big Read. So I was talking to him earlier this week and he tells us more about the event. Stefan, thank you very much indeed for agreeing to talk to me. Now, you're the chairman, are you, of the Maidenhead Big Read? That's right, yes. So tell me, what is the Maidenhead Big Read? Tell me all about it. I was born and brought up in Baghdad in the Middle East. Right. I treated our family, grandchildren, daughter, son and their um, families, four grandchildren, to Dubai on a holiday because that's the nearest for me to show the, the, the grandchildren about the Middle East and what it's like and the desert, etc. So uh-huh. we spent a week there. And while I was there, I saw a poster, or various posters, about the reading festival, Sharjah Reading Festival. So I got excited, looked at but unfortunately it was the week after we, came, uh, we were there. So when I came back, I searched on the internet and found it, and it's really, it is... 80% of the population of the country to write. So it was encouraging more people to read. So it's a reading festival. And they've got publishers, authors, illustrators, robotics, everything. Huge, just like the NEC. Huge. Yeah. So I thought, great. I'll look and see, search Google about reading festivals in UK. I only got one, and that was Reading Festival. <laughs> so we, I mean, I lived in Cheltenham. We, we have the Cheltenham. 
at the Hay, and th- there are a number of them. Even Windsor has got one, and, Hen- and Henley's got one as well. And but they're all aimed at people who love books and want to try different authors, new authors, etc. I was really more focusing on people who are reluctant to read, and how can we get them to enjoy? Including me, I don't read many books. And how do we encourage the, especially those who are disadvantaged parents or parents of foreign origin, therefore they struggle, they don't know about the English literature. So that's how really uh, started. But also, my other hat, Rotary, I look after education and youth, and one of the things we do is having readers, they go to 17 schools around in Maidenhead, to encourage to listen to children weekly to read. So that's really the the background to it. And we did the festival in 2019, in March to coincide with the World Book Day that week, with invited authors, local authors and and, and, and illustrators. It was purely how we can arouse the interest of children to start reading. It's fantastic. We changed our philosophy a little bit. To start with, I was aiming for adults and children. So we thought we'll go for children only. And through the children, the parents would then also be encouraged. So it was really great. So this year, we do it in a slightly different way. We learned. So we're doing during the week, either in-person presentations or Zoom, depending on, on the authors and others came to, uh, coming to here. So the, for the 1st to the 10th of March, we are doing during the week weekdays, we are getting two presenters a day or other one or the other and about Mo Farrow's book which is great the weekend in between the 5th and the 6th we thought we'd do something again big in town we uh, came up with an idea of this incredible ocean it's a voluntary organization they are scientists and they do a lot of events around the country basically it is about life below the ocean, whales, dolphins, any animal that is lives in the ocean, and to, to try to promote that. Ocean Alive is the theme for the Maidenhead Big Read Festival, which is the weekend of March the 5th and the 6th. And where now, will that take place? Okay. We decided to go into the library um, ah. because children don't relate to library. Most children we found from the readers is dating the library is what's in the school, full stop, because parents don't take them. And parents will go there for, uh, it, it certainly Maidenhead, to get their bus passes or they to get to pay their, uh, get a social security a payment or whatever, but they don't go there to pick up books. Ah, that's interesting. Right. So libraries now have so, moved from somewhere you go to read to actually some sort of social interaction in terms of... Um, yeah. government support yeah so what we've done in the library we've got four areas one is for storytelling one corner children's storytelling one corner is for reading so we've got some readers to sit down and anybody comes in the child can read the parent can read or the reader can read and if there are a group of them that's fine you know just sit uh, very casually on, on soft seats or whatever and some bean bags and, um, and and just quietly read to the others so to encourage reading together type thing and then the third area in there is presentation so we've got some authors to do 
talks on an hourly basis, both Saturday and Sunday. Again, it's related to the ocean. That sounds a fantastic uh, idea. And outside, the, we've got amphitheatre outside. We are setting up a dome that is six metre by six metre in, in size to be able to have artefacts in it about the ocean animals. And there will be people there to give little demonstrations and talks and experiments about the, the uh, ocean animals. So that's outside. And, and then inside also we're having an orca, an inflatable orca that is 10 metres long and 4 metres in... Um, in oh, that's uh, fantastic! The largest uh, whale ever in the world. To be inside the library. Inside the library, and it fits in. We measured it, double measured it, it fits in nicely. So we're having that as well. So the library is going to be a hive of activities, inside and outside. And in addition to that, I managed to secure an area on the high street, just over the York Stream, to have once upon a bus, to storytelling all day, Saturday and Sunday. Again, ocean-related. Fantastic. That sounds brilliant. (laughs) A really exciting weekend. So it's March the 5th and 6th. You've got Maidenhead Library that's got lots of different areas for reading yourself, reading in groups. And then you've got a reading bus. You've got this geodesic display area in the amphitheatre outside with um, people talking about the ocean and artefacts associated with this. You've got this massive whale, orca whale. It's going to sit on the floor. Oh, on the floor? But having such a massive animal on the floor allows you to walk around it and really appreciate yes. how long it is. That's, how long it is. Yes, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, yes, with the fins and you know, the tail. It's fabulous. Brilliant. Well, that sounds really good. So obviously our radio programme is for adults. So what's the message we want to say to the people who listen in to Turning Pages? What should we be getting them to, to do to encourage children to, uh, to read? So this is to create an interest in the ocean and the animal and, and then the effect of the climate change, etc., which will come into it as well. That will then hopefully with their appetite to look for more information by reading books. Our our objective is always to read books, to encourage more people to read books because whether you're adult or child, you can develop uh, oneself into improving your career, your way of living, etc. So the message really is come and learn more about the ocean and that would also tie in with the climate change, how it's affecting the animals in the ocean, which will affect us as well. Great. How would you recommend that we encourage our children to read and love books? Well, the only way I would recommend is that we read with the children. We read to them and get them to read to us. It's amazing how many children don't read bedtime stories. The teacher gives them homework to please read this two pages of this or whatever. And the parent responds in the morning to say, sorry, I didn't have any time to read with the children. So a lot of them don't value the importance of reading at bedtime with the children. It doesn't have to be bedtime, but Mm -hmm. reading together because children get encouraged when they 
when the parents read with them and also they imitate the parents so the adults read the children want to read as well well Stefan, thank you very much indeed for talking to me about about maidenhead big read it sounds brilliant and i wish you every success thank, thank you, you very much heather it does sound good, doesn't it? It does. They're a really good festival. And for all of the family, all of the events are free and they are scheduled uh, to be at the Maidenhead Library on the weekend of March the 5th and 6th. Now, you can find out more about the uh, Maidenhead Big Read by looking at the website. Now, uh, this is the website address. Uh, it's www.maidenheads-big hyphen read.org.uk. I'll repeat that www.maidenheads hyphen big hyphen read.org.uk. And that maidenhead is with an S, isn't it? Which yes, is, it is. Yeah. Yes, it's maidenheads. Yeah. It's yeah, maidenheads hyphen big. Yes. Yeah, so don't yeah. forget to put the S at the end yeah. of maidenhead. Brilliant. It should be should be great for all mm. families out there. Right, so coming up, we'll be talking a little bit about Jane Austen. But first, for all you lovers of romantic fiction out there, and we know there are many, the Romantic Novel Awards 2022 has just announced their shortlist titles for this year. So previous winners include grand names that we all know and love, such as Philip Gregory, Joanna Trollope and Rosamund Pilcher. And these winners will be announced on the 7th of March. Mm. Now, interestingly, the awards are run by the Romantic Novelists Association, um, and the award is, is unique in that they are, are judged entirely by readers rather than a panel of judges that's usually made up of publishers or, or authors. So it's actually the readers. So if you're a romantic fiction reader yourself, and this is something like, and you will be interested in becoming a reader judge for next year's awards, you should contact Sharon Ibbotson, the awards coordinator. And there's an email address. Now, I will repeat it because it's a little bit long and complicated. It's RNA Awards, which is all one word. So you've got the initials RNA, then awards at romanticnovelistsassociation.org. So I'll repeat that. RNA Awards at romanticnovelistsassociation.org. Brilliant. So this year there are nine award categories up for grabs and I'm delighted to see that the Romantic Comedy Award has been renamed the Jane Wenham Jones Award for Romantic Comedy in honour of the late Jane Wenham Jones, who I had the pleasure to know. She uh, had been the compare of these awards for the last 11 years, but she was also a best-selling romantic novelist in her own right, as well as a broadcaster and a friend of literary festivals around the country. She will be sorely missed. She used to come along to the literary festival that we uh, used to organise, and uh, one of my favourite uh, memories of her is she got a cast from the Archers to come along and, and talk. Oh, and so we were lovely. talking about how to how to have sex in the in on the radio. <laughs> Lots of rustling, <laughs> lots of rustling in sheets. No nudity, of course, folks. Yes, of course. Yeah. So she was she was fabulous. She was really funny and her romantic novels were laugh out loud, feel good books. And if you've not read one, I can recommend The Big Five O published by One More Chapter. Oh, that sounds really good. Now, just to remind you, in case you've forgotten, you are listening to Turning Page with Heather and me, Julian. Thank you for listening. So it's a truth universally acknowledged that when a book does well, 
The publishing world likes to see how they can spin a winning formula. And by that sentence, dear readers, you will guess that we're talking about Jane Austen this morning. Mm -hmm. Now, the topic is inspired by a short break I'm going to be taking soon to Bath with my sister and our husbands. And frankly, I can't wait because Bath is just the most glorious Georgian town and everything about it seems to ooze Jane Austen. So to help me get into the mood, we've chosen chosen Jane Austen as our topic. And before anyone out there thinks this isn't for them, I want to start with the huge number of contemporary authors who use Jane Austen as a springboard for their own work. There have been hundreds of books that have been inspired by her work. So everything from, you could argue, sort of feminist reworking. So there's one called The Other Bennett Sister by Janice Hadlow. And that plays homage. Do you remember in Pride and Prejudice, you've got that middle child, the often neglected Mary Bennett, who's the introverted middle child? Well, The Other Bennett Sister puts her centre stage. All oh, right. And Strong Women uh, is also the theme of a young adult novel, The Austin Girls, by historian Lucy Worsley, who I'm uh, a keen fan of. And uh, she looks at the Regency life of women through the imagined lives of Jane Austen's nieces. And there's also Charlotte by Helen Moffat, looking at what happened to Charlotte Lucas, who, if we remember, marries the pompous clergyman, Mr. Collins, in Pride and Prejudice. Ooh, that sounds good. And going back to Lucy Worsley, Lucy's also done a non-fiction book um, ah. about uh, Jane Austen, talking about the homes that she has lived in, oh, right. which is uh, really good. Um, there are novels inspired by her life and family, such as the literary detective story Miss Austen by Jill Hornby. And Jill Hornby reimagines the relationship between Jane Austen and her sister Cassandra. Now, Cassandra burned all the letters from Jane uh, when she died. And Jane was a fabulous letter writer. Mm-hmm. So mm. all that information has, uh, has went up in smoke. And you do wonder, what was the scandal mm. that Cassandra felt that she needed to protect Jane from? Yes, um, indeed. Yeah, that is, yeah. That is a question. It's fascinating, yes. Yeah. Now, there's also social commentary, uh, which is the backdrop of Joe Baker's Longbourn, which is, in fact, Pride and Prejudice, um, seen through the fascinating cast of the servants in the Bennett household. Oh, that would be good. And P.D. Mm. James, of course, yes. um, has even applied her great powers of suspense to a crime fiction tribute in Death Comes to Pemberley, which is set with um, when Elizabeth and Darcy have been married and they, they move right. to Pemberley. Yeah. And they're living in Pemberley, yeah. Yes. And, and there's even, um, there's the Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, uh, basically a zany mashup of Pride and Prejudice by Seth Graham Smith, because it is a truth universally acknowledged that a zombie in possession of brains must be in want of more brains. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so amazingly, there is just six major novels um, printed early in the 1800s. So you're talking 200. 20 years ago 
published anonymously and with very little fanfare. But since then, Jane Austen has inspired millions of readers and writers and historians. So Mm. that is marvellous. So, Julian, which is your favourite Jane Austen novel? Well, I have to say it's very interesting that um, Pride and Prejudice has cropped up in a number of references already this morning, Heather, because it, in fact, is Pride and Prejudice is my chosen book today. And it's possibly my favourite, followed closely by um, Sense and Sensibility. Now, I was looking at the Jane Austen website and they're the top two. Right, yes. Favourite books. So you're absolutely in line with everybody else. Everybody else, yeah. And I think partly because I think they're just great titles as well. They're just really fantastic titles. Um, And what I like very much about Pride and Prejudice is is the colourful cast of characters dominated by the Bennett family. Um, From stoic Mr Bennett, who's the patriarch of a house full of women. Um, And he's blessed with five daughters. There's Jane, the eldest, Elizabeth, second eldest, Mary, who we've just mentioned, who's rather the drab middle one. Then there's Catherine, known as Kitty, and then Lydia, the youngest and flightiest. And of these last three, Mr. Bennett does refer to them as the three silliest girls in England. And of course, there's his hypochondriac wife, Mrs. Bennett, whose principal concern and activity is trying to marry off her daughters to suitably rich men. Now, this is more pressing because um, having no son and heir himself, uh, Mr. Bennett's estate, Longbourn, is in tailed away to the male line and will be inherited by a distant cousin who is the obsequious and pompous Reverend William Collins. Which is a terrible thing, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, yes. Just swept aside. Girls are swept aside. So Mr Bennett could could have dropped dead the following day. Yeah. The family's out and Mr Collins takes over and that, and that's it. Um, course, which also women... there's an element in sense and sensibility yes. as well. Yeah, you know. oh, well, in all but, her books, I think yeah. there's that need to be married. And of course, women don't have jobs. So it's not as no. if women no. need... Or women of that level of that class. I mean, yeah. obviously, women did work, but of that class, it's not as if they could oh, do do things and no, train no, up exactly. to be a lawyer no, exactly. or a doctor yeah. or anything. So, <laughs> indeed, you're quite right. Um, now, the thing is, in her effort to do this, Mrs. 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 Bennett is all of a flutter with excitement because she hears the news that the the, the lease of the nearby estate, Netherfield Park, has been taken on by the eligible young gentleman by the name of Charles Bingley, who, more importantly to Mrs. Bennett, has inherited a fortune, giving him an annual living of £5,000. Now, Mrs. Bennett immediately instructs her husband to call upon Mr. Bingley as soon as possible, to which Mr. Bennett initially refused. However, eventually Mrs. Bennett um, gets to visit Netherfield in the company of her daughters to meet Mr. Bingley and his guests, which include his two sisters, the snobbish and catty Caroline Bingley, and Mrs. Louisa Hurst, who's not much better, and her rather boorish husband. Now, also staying um, at at Netherfield is the much wealthier Mr. Darcy, reputed to have an annual income of £10,000 and a substantial estate in Derbyshire called Pemberley. Now the stage is set for romance to blossom, or is it? The Reverend Collins arrives at Longbourn uh, and on a visit and, uh, and basically to, you know, casts his eye over his inheritance, I imagine, but immediately pursues Elizabeth because, as Mr Collins declares, his patroness, the overbearing, interfering and condescending lady, lady Catherine de Berger, told him it would be advantageous to his position as parson 
of the parish um, uh, that she is living in. Now, with this in mind and a possible desire to assist the Bennett family, which I think he genuinely believes yes. to, Mr. Collins presses his suit uh, to the dismay of Elizabeth, who briskly disabuses Mr. Collins of his idea. So I thought, let's listen to the outcome of Mr. Collins's suit. Excellent. Pride and Prejudice. Mr. Collins was not left long to the silent contemplation of his successful love, for Mrs. Bennet, having dawdled about in the vestibule to watch for the end of the conference, no sooner saw Elizabeth open the door and with quick step pass her towards the staircase than she entered the breakfast room and congratulated both him and herself in warm terms on the happy prospect of their nearer connection. Mr. Collins received and returned these felicitations with equal pleasure and then proceeded to relate the particulars of their interview, with the result of which he trusted he had every reason to be satisfied, since the refusal which his cousin had steadfastly given him would naturally flow from her bashful modesty and the genuine delicacy of her character. This information, however, startled Mrs. Bennet. She would have been glad to be equally satisfied that her daughter had meant to encourage him by protesting against his proposals, but she dared not believe it and could not help saying so. But depend upon it, Mr. Collins, she added, that Lizzie shall be brought to reason. I will speak to her about it directly. She is a very headstrong, foolish girl and does not know her own interest, but I will make her know it. "'Pardon me for interrupting you, madam,' cried Mr. Collins. "'But if she is really headstrong and foolish, "'I know not whether she would altogether be a very desirable wife "'to a man in my situation "'who naturally looks for happiness in the marriage state. "'If therefore she actually persists in rejecting my suit, "'perhaps it were better not to force her into accepting me, "'because if liable to such defects of temper, "'she could not contribute much to my felicity.' "'Sir, you quite misunderstand me,' said Mrs. Bennet, alarmed. "'Lizzie is only headstrong in such matters as these. "'In everything else she is as good-natured a girl as ever lived. "'I will go directly to Mr. Bennet, and we shall very soon settle it with her, I am sure.' "'She would not give him time to reply, but hurrying instantly to her husband, "'called out as she entered the library. "'Oh, Mr. Bennet, you are wanted immediately. "'We are all in an uproar. "'You must come and make Lizzie marry Mr. Collins, "'for she vows she will not have him, "'and if you do not make haste, "'he will change his mind and not have her.' "'Mr. Bennet raised his eyes from his book as she entered "'and fixed them on her face with a calm unconcern "'which was not in the least altered by her communication. "'I have not the pleasure of understanding you,' he said. "'when she'd finished her speech. "'Of what are you talking? "'Of Mr. Collins and Lizzie. "'Lizzie declares she will not have Mr. Collins, "'and Mr. Collins begins to say he will not have Lizzie. "'And what am I to do on the occasion? "'It seems a hopeless business. "'Speak to Lizzie about it yourself. "'Tell her that you insist upon her marrying him. "'Let her be called down. "'She shall hear my opinion.' "'Mrs. Bennet rang the bell, "'and Miss Elizabeth was summoned to the library.' "'Come here, child,' cried her father as she appeared. "'I have sent for you on an affair of importance. "'I understand that Mr. Collins has made you an offer of marriage. "'Is it true?' "'Elizabeth replied it was. "'Very well. "'And this offer of marriage you have refused?' "'I have, sir. "'Very well. "'We now come to the point. "'Your mother insists upon your accepting it. "'Is it not so, Mrs. Bent? "'Oh, yes, or I will never see her again!' 
an unhappy alternative is before you, Elizabeth. From this day you must be a stranger to one of your parents. Your mother will never see you again if you do not marry Mr. Collins, and I will never see you again if you do. Brilliant. (laughs) What a dilemma. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, during a ball um, at the Meryton Assembly Rooms, uh, Jane is taken by the handsome Mr. Bingley and and is is, is noted that he returns her glances. And all the while, the brooding Mr. Darcy, who disapproves of this rustic society and this entertainment, is keeping an eye on Elizabeth, who has taken a dislike to Mr. Darcy's manner. Now, as is the hallmark of Jane Austen's work, confusion, misunderstanding and downright dislike soon start to engulf the entire cast of characters. Now, into this mix comes the handsome Mr. George Wickham, who has recently joined the militia, which is billeted nearby um, and whose offices provide the core of gentlemen admirers of the ladies of local society, particularly Lydia. Um, But he seems to have uh, received the enmity of Mr. Darcy uh, and the root cause, which is long in the past. Now, consternation, Mr. Bingley leaves Netherfield and is unlikely to return, much to Mrs. Bennet's disquiet and consternation and Jane's sadness. And Elizabeth begins to suspect that Mr. Darcy may have had something to do with it, not knowing that Mr. Bingley's own catty sisters had had a hand in it too. Now, meanwhile, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Darcy calls, I think this is also great, but he comes to call on Elizabeth uh, to tell her that despite her low status in society, and not to put too Bad fine a point on it, the daughter of a rather low-grade family, oh. he's prepared to set aside uh, that and declares his love for her. Having made short work of Mr. Collins before now, it didn't take um, much for Elizabeth to give Mr. Darcy a piece of his, her mind and dispatch him and his offer forthwith. Quite right, too. Exactly. Now, Mrs. Bennet, uh, brother, and his wife try to help the family as best they can, and they they host Jane in their London um, home, where she hopes uh, but fails to meet up with Mr. Bingley. Um, And then a little later, they take Elizabeth on a trip to Derbyshire, um, following the turmoil of Mr. Darcy's attentions. Now, it's whilst they're in Derbyshire that Elizabeth receives a letter with news that flighty Lydia not only accompanied the wife of the militia's colonel to Brighton when the militia moved there, but also what she got up to. We also learned that what Mr. Wickham had done to cause Mr. Darcy's opprobrium, and there's a flap and panic at Longbourn, with Mrs. Bennet having a tack of the vapours. Now, to find out what happens, if you don't know already, dear listener, you'll simply have to read the book. And it's a thoroughly fantastic book. It's it it easy, is a thoroughly fantastic book. It's an book. easy and it, read, it, isn't it? Exactly. That's what I was going to say. And I think, because I think a lot of people say, oh, Jane Austen, you know, written in the 1800s, it's going to be really difficult. But it's not. It's, it's very, very well written and very easily written. It's not, um, it's not, um, hard work. It's not, it's no. not, it's not classical writing in, in, in that sort of like walking through molasses, you know, I mean, it really is an easy flow and it's, and, and she's a very witty writer. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it, that should be remembered um, because 
and, and don't be put off by that. Now, of course, the other thing that this is in this rich vein of, of, of uh, English social life, and, and the other things, for example, where you know the courtesy, where you know men, uh, you know men, you know bowed to the ladies' courtesy and so forth, and and the referral to each other by mm. formal names, Mrs. Bennet, you know, even to your wife, you know, all of this um, has is a great mine for film and television companies, uh, and in my opinion, one of the best adaptation was the BBC six-part series, which was aired, would you believe, in 1995. Oh, no. uh, but, of course, among other things, introduced the, the rather sultry uh, Colin Firth as the handsome, brooding Mr Darcy, um, who started many hearts fluttering around through this realm. Oh, that's, of course, doing his uh, wet T-shirt act. As it exactly, the- yes. And I think that was uh, so. It wasn't only Mrs. Bennet that had the flutters. I think there were a lot of ladies around the country that were going. <laughs> but uh, but not just uh, not not just uh, Colin Firth. I I thought the entire cast was absolutely superb, um, from the measured calm of Jennifer L, who played Elizabeth, to the quiet, kindly Jane Bennett, played by Susanna Harker. And in fact, I think an Oscar should have gone to uh, um, Alison Steadman for her glorious portrayal of the highly strung hypochondriac Mrs. Bennett. I, I, mean, she, I think you were channeling Alison Steadman. I was, I was, yes. She, to me, well, I think that Alison Steadman is the benchmark for um, Mrs. Bennett, very much um, like um, uh, Edith uh, Evans playing oh, um, Lady Bracknell. Exactly, I think they've yes. set the pace and of which you've got to follow because no other interpretation can really, really work. No. Um, Benjamin Whitrow, um, who was uh, the husband of, um, and her name's just going to uh, slip away from me. Um, never he mind, was Mr. Come back to that. Mr. No, yeah, no, yeah. no, no, he was, he was the real husband. Um, uh, was in the dinner ladies, but never mind. Um, <clears throat> uh, he plays, uh, he was actually described by one critic as a scene stealer um, playing Mr. Bennett. Then Judy Sawala played the flighty and annoying, you really want to slap her <laughs> youngest daughter, Lydia. Um, but there are other interesting things. There's actresses and actors that appeared that were what not well known, but who are now, including Anna Chancellor and Amelia Fox. And the BBC adaptation was declared by one critic as probably as good as it gets for a literary classic. Well, I've got to say it is. It is Mm. fantastic. Mm. Yeah. And I know uh, the other Jane Austen um, book, Sanderton, which is one that she left uh, unfinished when she died. And that's obviously had lots of publicity Mm. and it's just recently. But I do think even Mm. though it was 1995, it still stands the test Mm. of time, doesn't it? It does. In fact, actually, I have watched that series, I think, three times now. And the last time I saw, I watched it was about a week ago. Um, And uh, because it's it's available on, um, if if you've got a subscription to BritBox, it's on on BritBox. Ah, okay. But the beauty of it is, um, is that, you know, from the extract um, that uh, I read, you know, that was I, that's identical to the script in, yes. in, in the program. So you know, it is it, it, it it's visual book. You know, it's really superb. Yeah, and and the book is brilliant. Yeah, absolutely, and really, really, and really good. enjoyable. Really, yeah. must go and read it. Yeah, I've been reading Persuasion um, oh, just recently right. because I'm writing an essay about Nelson. 
Oh, right. And, Ooh, yes. uh, and Emma Hamilton, famously yes. uh, Nelson's lover. Mm. And mm. Persuasion is set during uh, the Napoleonic Wars, where ah. one of the main characters, Anna, uh, marries a, a captain. And uh, he's sort of looked down on as very snobby. And, of course, he goes away becomes a hero and when he comes back everybody likes him now uh, right, <laughs> they're all very superficial aren't they <laughs> yes yes <laughs> but it was really lovely because it gives you that mm. feeling of mm. what it must be like mm. to be uh, a wife of uh, somebody in the navy or mm. the or the or in the army and it just sure is exactly the mm. same now where mm. you're just waiting for news and mm. of course in those days the, there's no telephone you know Letters would take years sometimes, mm. certainly months mm. to come through. Mm. Uh, so it's really yeah. interesting from that perspective. I mean, I know it's um, a, it, it, it's a slip over a different author, but it's a bit like um, Thackeray's Vanity Fair. You know, when when the wives would go with their with their soldier Often, husbands yes. to uh, you know yeah. to, they go off to Brussels with you know when they were about to fight Napoleon and they would go they just pack up and say right okay okay it was a gilded life because they were you know um, uh, well to do ladies and so on but it was but those and that's what I like about Jane Austen it's all of that social history detail it is yes it's got, social yeah. commentary yeah. just yeah, like today's books are social commentaries on yes. how we live our life yes. at the moment yes. jane austen's was how they lived their lives but in the regions then, of time exactly yeah? yeah and i totally agree with you and that's why i have chosen actually a non-fiction uh book ah, about right. jane austen and because i had so much trouble trying to work out which was my favorite book and why and then i thought claire tomlin so I mm-hmm. don't know if you've ever read any biographies uh, by Claire Tomlin. I haven't. She is fantastic. I've not read a bad book by her. She's really marvellous. And she's written one on Jane Austen called Jane Austen, A Life, and is published by Viking. So Jane Austen's brother, Henry, wrote in the very first biographical notice about Jane. Uh, and that was used for the posthumous publication of North. Hanger Abbey and Persuasion in 1818. Uh, Henry wrote, um, short and easy will be the task of the mere biographer. A life of usefulness, literature and religion was not by any means a life of event, um, as he was describing Jane Austen's light, which is a bit a bit mean. And um, obviously, we are all waiting for a stash of hidden letters um, to come out, or possibly a new manuscript. You never know. This is what we're all looking for. But it seems that there's no nothing out there, or nothing that mm. we've found so far. But whenever you look at Jane Austen, you always think, despite it's the same amount of material that biographers have to, uh, mm. have to mine, there's more you can say about her all the time. Um, and Tomlin, I think, is an intelligent interpreter of life. So she's not showy or pretentious, but she just allows you to be shown what we have and what that could mean. And Mm. there's very little, of course, we were saying before that Jane's sister Cassandra burned all her letters. And there's something about in the letters that talks about a diary as well. But of course, it looks as though that's been burned. Um, But this book, because there isn't that much, it's as much about what life was generally like for a Regency daughter of uh, of lesser means and what that could have meant for her life. Just like Austen's books allow us to look at England at that time, by us looking at Regency Britain allows us to look at Jane 
Jane Austen, I suppose. Mm. Um, anyway, she shows that on her contrary to her brother's assertions, Austen's brief life was fraught with upheaval. Um, we've got, of course, Austen's ill-fated love for a young Irishman that mm. we know about. Uh, she travelled frequently and she had extended visits to London and, and to Bath. And her, um, she had a close friendship with a worldly cousin whose French husband met the death on Madame Guillotine. Mm, so, and of course, her brother was in naval service in the Napoleonic Wars, and he also went over to the colonies wow. um, as a naval officer. So all this, I think, sort of shatters the myth of Jane Austen as this sort of sheltered and homebound spinster whose knowledge of the world was limited to a view <laughs> from a Hampshire village. Anyway, I've got a short excerpt that I'd just like to share with you, which is about the birth of Jane in her uh, little Hampshire village. So let's just oh, read right. it. The winter of 1775 was a hard one. On the 11th of November, the naturalist Gilbert White saw that the trees around his Hampshire village of Selborne had lost almost all their leaves. Trees begin to be naked, he wrote in his diary. Fifteen miles away, higher up in the Downs, in the village of Steventon, the rector's wife was expecting the birth of her seventh child from day to day as the last leaves fell. She was 36 and had been married for 11 years. Four sturdy little boys ran about the parsonage and the big garden at the back, with its yard and outhouses rising to the fields and woodland beyond. The eldest, James, at 10, already showed promise as a scholar sharing his father's taste in books, and the only daughter, Cassie, kept her mother entertained with her constant chatter as she followed her around the house and out to visit the dairy and the chickens and ducks. Cassie would be three in January. Outside Mr. Austin's study, the house was seldom entirely quiet. November days went by, and the rain set in, keeping the boys indoors. By the end of the month, it was dark in the house at three in the afternoon, and dinner had to be eaten very promptly if they were to do without candles. Still, no baby appeared. December came, bringing an epidemic of colds and feverish complaints. There was a sharp frost, putting ice on the ponds, enough for the boys to go sliding. Then, on the 16th, White noted, fog, sun, sweet day. The 16th of December was the day of Jane Austen's birth. The month's delay in her arrival inspired her father to a small joke about how he and his wife had, in old age, grown such bad reckoners. He was 44. The child came in the evening, he said, without much warning. There was no need for a doctor. It was rare to call one for something as routine as childbirth. And the nearest, in Basingstoke, was seven miles away over bad roads. In any case, everything was soon happily over. They were pleased to have a second daughter, a present plaything for her sister Cassie and a future companion. She is to be Jenny. George Austen's letter went on to talk of the prospects of a ploughing match in which he was interested. Kent against Hans for a rump of beef, weather permitting. A village rector in a remote country parish was as much a real farmer as a shepherd of souls. So it sounded a very um, cold um, start to her life, which went on to mm. do great things. So what I thought was interesting was that Jane wrote the first draft of Pride and Prejudice when she was the same age as Elizabeth Bennet. 
So oh, that was about right. 20 years old. But by the time it was published in 1813, she was almost old enough to be Elizabeth's mother. So that was a oh, gap yeah. of 17 years. Wow. And Sense and Sensibility took 16 years between the first draft and publication. And Northanger Abbey, 20 years to find a publisher. And it didn't appear into print until its author was dead, of course. So how easily any one of those manuscripts might have been lost? <laughs> Well, I have to say, I'm not at all surprised it took her so long because she was galloping around all over the place. As, I mean, as you say, and she's in, she's even came here to Sevenoaks. Um, her uncle lived oh, here. Yeah. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah, she came to visit him, and his house, um, which is called the Red House, is is still on the high street. It's a very handsome house, um, and uh, it's got a um, nice brick wall, and it's actually the home of a firm of solicitors. Now, I don't know. This might be free advertising for them but I have to tell you the name because I think it's Jane Austen meets um, Charles Dickens because the name of the solicitors has a fantastic Dickensian name it's Knocker and Foskett <laughs> fantastic name for a solicitor you <laughs> would want to go to a solicitor's <laughs> name was that <laughs> Yes, and it, and it's so yes, so Jane. I mean, she was she was she was galloping around all over the place, wasn't she? Yeah. And she you know, she, she said probably there was no time for her to write novels. No, <laughs> that's true. And did you know that amazing fact? I think her amazing fact is her aunt uh, got breast cancer, so they they knew in those days that they could identify something was cancerous, and oh. then they also knew that the solution was to cut off a breast. So without oh. anaesthetic. Jane Austen's aunt um, had her breast cut off to remove yeah. cancer. She survived, which wow. I think is Gosh. pretty amazing. I mean, um, that, that, yes, that is. Because I, I pres- well, yes, I suppose. Uh, well, it was Lister was antiseptic, wasn't it? So, so oh, was it be- so before? Yes, yeah. I know. Ooh. Anyway, it doesn't bear thinking yeah. about. It doesn't. Um, oh, um, apropos of nothing at all, well, yeah. actually a link. I've just remembered um, uh, Benjamin Whitrow's wife um, in real life, Celia Imry. Oh, was it? Yes. Oh, lovely. Yeah, Celia Imry. Yes, yes. Uh, anyway, so that, well, that's still linked with Jane Austen because he was Mr. Bennett. Yes. Absolutely. Yes, that's right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so we were talking earlier on about the importance of encouraging children to read. Yes. And um, and I was just wondering what your favourite child's book was when you were young. Well, I had a book, and now this could be a bit con- controversial because, um, um, uh, not controversial in a way, because, but I think there was a bit of plagiarism um, many, many years uh, later, and I won't point the finger, but it was actually um, a, a book called Henry the Helicopter. And Henry the Helicopter yes. was um, a police helicopter who actually flew about and did talk. Uh, and that was one of my favourites. I've forgotten the author's name, uh, and it certainly wasn't Sarah Ferguson. Um, and uh, it was really good. Then there was another one I had, I loved it a boy, uh, as a boy, but I've forgotten the title, but it all, it all had to do with a, a, what, a, a character who was a bit, of a, a, a bit like an imp or a sprite, who was actually the cherry cobbler. And he would go round all of the cherry trees and, and putting uh, a little uh, little drop of something to make the cherries grow. But I have to say, as I as I grew a little bit older, but still quite young, my favourites, I have to say, were the famous five um, by yes. Enid Blyton. I love those books. Yes. And and my my um, my my Saturday, we as children, we got our pocket money on a Saturday. 
Uh, and it was always, it was very democratic. So it, it went up by age. So Maria, who uh, was number one daughter, Caroline the middle meets, so it was that. So I had two shillings. That uh, was my pocket money. And two shillings at that time bought you, I'm not sure if there's a little bit of change left over. Might Oh, it, yes. it Yes, it did have to. Because for, for two shillings, I could buy a paperback copy of um, one of the famous five and mm-hmm. a galaxy chocolate bar. And they were huge in those days. Remember when they were launched and they were in, in, in the pale blue and cream things. And then on, that was my Saturday treat. So I go to the local car wow. shop for little stationers, but they yeah. had a little selection and they had those. And I would buy those and I'd buy one and because you knew because they were numbered. And then I would go and buy the, the chocolate. And then I would retreat to bed after my, my bath and I go to bed at whatever six and then, and I would take my chocolate bar and my book. And that was me for the night. Well, that was now, a very grand household. Yes. My Saturday treat was going to the library. Ah, well, you see, because we didn't have a television, um, I was going to the library at least three times a week anyway, so to borrow books. So this was an addition. But I must tell you, the alternate weeks when I didn't buy a book and the chocolate, I used to spend my money on a little um, matchbox car. Oh, I bet you wished you kept those. I've got them. They're somewhere up in the loft. Oh, are you you rich? (laughs) Well, no, probably, because I really played with them. So they're probably all chipped and everything else, you see, and and the boxes long went. But anyway, so that's it. Dishes all, yes, yeah. yeah. But uh, yes, I do think that that treat as a child of getting a, a fresh book to smell. Mm, yes, and that's the... And to now, own. I just, and, and, and this this didn't apply um, uh, when I was a, a child. This was as as, as a young a, a young lad when I used to go to the to the to the um, library. Uh, but it's a, a little tip for for anybody who wants something a bit different. My father would say, "But I'd say, say, right, Julian said, well, okay, so Dad, I'm going to the library. What would you know? Would you want some books?' And I think we had three books or whatever it was. He, so he said, "Yes, okay. So what we'll do is because my father would read, you know, quite quite um, a, a range, and he would come up and he pick a letter. He pick three letters of the alphabet and a number." So he would say, let's say B27. So I would go to B's and pick 27. Yeah. Uh, and then if 27 was available, then you took obviously what was the next. So if there were only 26, and you pick those. And that's how I used to get his books for him. So we always have this complete random selection. So we pick a letter for the alphabet, for the surname, and then a number. And that's how uh, we selected his books. So he could have had anything from yes. a romance to a... Yes, yes. Wow. Yes, yeah. Uh, and did exactly. he always read them from start to finish? Yes, he would. Oh, so he, uh, yeah, he did. Well, and then, go, oh, no, this is rubbish. I'm not going to read this. There may be occasions he might have said that, but he sometimes, oh, well, that wasn't particularly, but it's just really good. And then he sort of choose. But generally it was in the fiction category. Though, ah, no, I beg your pardon. It wouldn't have been because in those days, um, romantic fiction was separate. So ah, that there yes, was there yeah. was a different, they did categorise it. Yeah. No, so he didn't get the, the, he didn't get the Mills and Boons. My mother had those. Yeah. But that's a great way of reading things that yes, you don't yes. know you're going to love. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Um, because often I find that people get sort of stuck in a rut of reading mm-hmm. a type of book. Mm, yeah. And then the joy of understanding that actually all loads of books are brilliant. I mean, there are going to be, there's going to be some genres that you might not enjoy mm. as much as others. But on the whole, a book well-written mm. is a joy exactly. to behold. Isn't it? And of course, with that system, somebody choosing it for you at random, you're then not standing there and then saying random, oh, I don't like the look of this and put it back. So you've got yes. to get what was selected. Yes. You have, to, you have to take what was selected. That's the beauty of sending your child to collect the book for you. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so other books we've been recommending today are we've had quite a number of books we to have and yes so the first one is recovery the lost art of convalescence by gavin francis and then there's vex king's good vibes good life published by hay house then the big five o published by jane wenham jones and that's sorry written by jane wenham jones and published by one more chapter and then we have Joe Baker Longbourn, published by Penguin Books. Oh, that sounded great, actually. It You've did. got The yeah. Other Bennett Sister by Janice Hadlow, published by Pan Books. And then we have The Austin Girls, um, written by Lucy Worsley, and that's published by Bloomsbury Children's Books. Uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies by <laughs> Jane Austen and Seth Graham Smith, uh, and that's published by Quirk Books. Mm -hmm. And then we have Charlotte uh, by Helen Moffat, and that's published by um, Manila Press. Uh, Miss Austen by Jill Hornby, published by Arrow. And then we have Death Comes to Pemberley by P.D. James, and that's published by Faber and Faber. And Jane Austen, A Life by Claire Tomlin, and published by Viking. So Excellent. we look forward to you joining us next Wednesday between 11 and 12 noon on River Radio. Thank you for joining us today. And don't forget, if you're not able to join us live for any of our programmes, you can listen again directly from our website. And Turning Pages is also available as a podcast. So you just search for Turning Pages on River Radio podcast. And next week, we'll be exploring Oxford as 